Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Bernadette Ballantyne. For this episode, our last of the year, we are bringing you a special Christmas gift. Many listeners may not know that the team at Reby Media work on a number of other projects besides Engineering Matters. One of these projects is a podcast we produce for one of our regular Engineering Matters episode partners, Fugro. It's called Planet Beyond, and each month an expert or panel of experts is invited to discuss an important issue that's relevant to the kind of work that Fugro do in gathering data about our world. The topics and the guests always generate fascinating stories, and we have one of those for you today. This is a story about a man getting back to basics, relying on engineering first principles and limited technology. The technology that was available back in the 1960s when this incredible feat was first achieved. It's a story about ocean exploration, competition and self-reliance. It is also a story about the importance of preparation and never giving up on your dreams. Hello again, and welcome to the Planet Beyond podcast, brought to you by Fugro, the leading partner in uncovering geodata from the greatest subsea depths right to outer space, and hosted by me, John Baston-Pitt. Now, this is a very special episode featuring one of Fugro's very own inspirational adventurers. I think that it's the adventurous spirit in people that has made many successful companies what they are today. Now, of course, to be truly great in what we choose to be, we often find these people are guided by a moral compass, core values that provide the relentless pointer to the right way. Principles that are called upon when the best plans are turned on their head. I'd like to test that out here with our guests today. Just like successful businesses, Mark Sinclair is heading out to sea to do something that hasn't been done before. Now, as our hydrographic director for Asia Pacific, he's used to brave steps and building on the experiences of those who've gone before. But I hope you'll agree, Mark is about to do something very special outside work as he prepares to go on a sabbatical to take on a long trip halfway around the world. By listening to this unique story, we can learn about perseverance, passion, preparation. Perhaps it will even inspire some of us to follow our dreams. Welcome, Mark. (laughs) G'day, John. Hey, thanks for the introduction. Look, I'm Mark Sinclair. I'm Fugro's Director of Hydrography in Asia Pacific, and I'm based in Adelaide, South Australia. I've worked for Fugro for almost 25 years now, and prior to that, I was in the, uh, the Royal Australian Navy for 20 years. As hydrographic surveyors, we do surveys around the world in the marine environment. We use ships, unmanned vehicles, uh, operating multi-beam echo sounder, and we use aircraft using airborne LIDAR bathymetry equipment. We measure the depth of water and the elevation of the coastline. And we also conduct oceanographic measurements of tides, tidal streams and currents. So this sailing business that you've referred to, this is something completely different that I do in my spare time. So in 2018, 
three years ago, I participated in the Golden Globe race. The Golden Globe race is a single-handed, unassisted, non-stop around the world race in traditional sailing vessels using traditional means. I was in a boat called Coconut, 10.4 meters long, uh, a sloop designed in South Africa in the 1960s. Very solid, very seaworthy. The race started in Le Sobdelon in uh, the Bay of Biscay in France on the 1st of July, 2018. I sailed down after the start, we all set off. I sailed down past the Canary Islands, Cape Verde Islands, across the equator, off the coast of Brazil, around the bottom of the South Atlantic High, past Cape Town, inshore across the bottom of South Africa, and then across the, uh, the Indian Ocean. As I crossed the Indian Ocean, I was running low on fresh water. You've got to collect rain to replenish. There's no modern technology in this race. And uh, in my case, I was probably sailing too far north and missed out on a lot of the, uh, the weather where the, where the rain was. And I also had problems with barnacles growing on coconut's hull. And so I came into port as a result of lack of fresh water and barnacle infestation. So it wasn't your fault then? Uh, it's always my fault. <laughs> so, but look, but look, in, 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 in sailing around the world, you do what's prudent. And um, although it was a non-stop race around the world, the bottom line was I was running out of water. I had barnacles. It was sensible to break the trip. So I came into Adelaide, which is the home port, because I was sailing by there at the time. So you didn't finish? No, I came into Adelaide on the 5th of December after 157 days at sea. So here I am in Adelaide, halfway round the track. Now, and I've been here and I've returned back to work, working for Fugrow, doing hydrographic surveys. But on the 5th of December this year, which will be the third anniversary of me coming in, I'm going to continue the trip. I'm going to cast off, sail off through Bass Strait or south of Tasmania, across the Tasman, through Fobo Strait or south of New Zealand, across the South Pacific, around the bottom of South America, past Cape Horn, up the coast of South America, back across the equator, around the Azores, and back to France. So what I'm doing is a simple lap of the globe with a short stop in Adelaide of three years. <laughs> is there a medal for the slowest circumnavigation of the world? For the slowest? Well, I always say you've got to be the fastest or the slowest. There's no, no fun being in the middle. But the, the whole reason for this, why, why bother, why do it? It's, um, it's because in 2022, there's the, um, the next Golden Globe race and I'm participating in that. So this is just to pre-position myself for the next time sailing around the world. And, and I'll have actually had a practice now. So I'll be in, uh, in good shape for the next race. That's an incredible amount of preparation for the next race. What dedication. Do you, do you think it will pay off? Well, interestingly enough, of all the people, so 18 people started, five finished. All the five that finished had all sailed around the world before. So I think this sail to Adelaide, 157 days, was not a bad warm up. And if I complete my practice, by completing the trip, then I'll be well prepared uh, for the next edition. So that's my plan.
this is probably a very good time to bring in our second guest. Our second guest is Don McIntyre, CEO of the Golden Globe Race itself. Well, happy to be here and um, uh, support Captain Coconut, a good friend of mine. <laughs> and the hardest thing to describe is what do I do and, and, and why am I here? But I don't work for anyone. I've worked for myself for 45 years and the uh, last 30 has been pretty much full-time adventuring. Now, some people may remember another guy by the name of Sir Francis Chichester. He went around the world in a solo circumnavigation with one stop in Sydney, Australia, and I read about it, and that was pretty interesting. But then shortly after, uh, there was the first ever non-stop solo race around the world called the Sunday Times Golden Globe Race that was in 1968. And that was before, uh, well, it was a long time ago, right? And there were nine starters, only one finisher. And the finisher was Sir Robin Ox Johnson in a little old wooden boat called Suhaley. And it completely blew me away. So to cut a long story short, the first boat I ever built when I was 18 was a concrete replica of Sir Robin's boat, Suhaley. He was a real hero to you, wasn't he? And in 1982, you actually got to meet him in Sydney. My hero, Robin Ox Johnson, I heard was actually coming to town and I'd actually get to meet him. Uh, in a race office, I stood, ar stood around like a bad smell and sure enough, Robin came into the room and when I finally got to talk to him, all he wanted to do was talk about cricket right? and I never followed cricket. He didn't want to talk about <laughs> rounding Cape Horn and the Southern Ocean and all those things. I thought, crikey, he's pretty much a very nice ordinary guy and that set me uh, with the ambition to do the same. So I decided I would do this solo round the world race called the BOC Challenge. It was held every four years. I was ready to go in 1990, and I completed that race. It was a four-stopover race, four legs. Um, I came second in my class. I had a boat called Buttercup, a 52-footer, and it was a lot of fun. And that was just the start of your adventures, wasn't it? From the world's first gyrocopter flight around Australia to living in a box in Antarctica. When I was living in the box in Antarctica in 1995, the 30th anniversary of Sir Robin's voyage was coming up. And I thought, oh, what's next? Okay, I'll do a historical reenactment of that voyage. But then you went flying instead. But the idea stayed with you. So on the 40th anniversary of his voyage, I thought, oh, I'm going to do Robin's voyage again. You know, and I ne very nearly pulled it off that time, but I did another adventure instead. So when the 50th anniversary was coming up in 2018, I decided right. that's it. So you were determined this time to do it the same way as your hero, with a small boat, no modern technology, no GPS, no satellite phones, just you and the ocean. And then I thought, oh, if I'm going to do it, maybe some others want to too. We could form a race like they did originally. I thought we'd get about seven or eight crazy guys, you know, like Captain Coconut, to join me. And so I announced the idea of a race in 2015, and it just went nuts overnight. I mean, we had people all over it wanted to join and stuff. And so bringing it up to the start, it became so big so quick that I couldn't enter, I couldn't compete. I had to manage it. And it was so dramatic, the race, and all the things that happened leading up to it and, and actually, you know, sort of being involved with it. It was actually a bigger adventure for me and Jane than actually entering the race. I can't help thinking that there would have been a sense of loss at that point. It was when I realised I couldn't enter because because it was a, that was my passion. I wanted to do it. Yeah, yeah. I'm a firm believer that adventure makes good people. You know what I mean? Yes. It's really important. You, you cannot learn the things you absorb from adventure in a classroom. You just can't do it. 
so that's a big personal passion for me to support adventure and and that's what happened with the ggr the golden globe race you know it was really inspiring a huge amount of people all over the world followed it and uh and it was a, a big success but it was demanding and it was as good as any adventure that i would ever done so the first event happened in 2018 and there was no time limit on completing it what is in store for 2022 getting going to be bigger and better in 2022 that's where where Mark comes into the to the deal. He was a bit of a character then. He was he was the last man standing in the on the race course at the end of the day because everyone had just shot over the horizon. Yeah, Mark just cruising along, you know, da 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 da. Lovely day out here, yeah yeah, you know all that sort of stuff. Um, but that was the rich colour of all the people in this race. You know, it was, it's a really completely unique. It's the longest, slowest, loneliest, uh, you know sporting event anywhere in the world for an individual there's nothing like it anywhere it's completely unique i'd like to explore this business about loneliness a bit later on but before we go there you painted a relaxed picture there of mark just taking his time to get started now i know mark a little bit and he's a bit of a technology man but when it came to this race this is without technology mark how did you cope with that a little unnerving, perhaps? Well, to be honest, that's the challenge um, because our lives are dominated by, uh, by computers, by email, by, by Facebook, by electronics, which is, which is great and it makes life efficient. But to be honest, to, you know, why do people go on hikes? Because you put all that aside. You, you use physical energy and uh an effort so in some ways leaving all those things behind is the whole essence of of, of why it's good and and why it's enjoyable there's the you're just, you're just getting the the weather forecasts from the bureau of meteorology you've got to add to that with your own observations you have to decide on your course you're sailing a boat with a simple mechanical wind vane there's no electronic autopilots you trim the sail balance the boat sail around the world there's no gps uh to tell you where you are the time to the next waypoint what course no computers no calculators you work it out with a pencil you work it out with a pencil and a few other tools few would be comfortable with that nowadays tell us a bit about how you navigate when modern technology is taken out of the equation basically you're navigating by the sun and the stars Basically, I just took sun sights the whole way around. And so you're using a sextant, you're, um, you're taking an altitude of the sun, and you might go, oh, that's pretty straightforward. Well, I'm, you know, you, you see the movies and they're, they're standing at the shrouds and they're taking a, an, an observation with the sextant. No way. You, 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 you're gripping with your knees in the companionway behind the dodger, um, trying to see the horizon between the intervening waves and uh, the boom's in the way and the sail's in the way and the self-steer is in the way. And you're trying to snap that sun. And when you snap that sun and measure that angle, you've also got to take the time to the nearest second. But you don't look at your digital watch because you've got an old mechanical wind-up watch that um, you, um, you check the time against HF radio. So there's an HF radio transmitting from... Uh, there's one in um, uh, California, there's one in Kauai, and uh, on 15 megahertz, 10 megahertz, 
you get the beeps, you correct that, so you know the error in your watch. Every, every four seconds of time is one minute up to a nautical mile of error. Grums, that sounds incredibly difficult. And then, of course, you need to chart that to get your position. And then you get out your log tables and the almanac and you work out by hand, which takes about 15 minutes. And from that, you get one position line, which is perpendicular to the bearing of the sun. And then as the sun swings during the day and you navigate along, you might get another position line and where they cross is where you are. But there's a certain magic about it because you're actually using, you're navigating more like Cook and Flinders than you are to modern days. And you're really strict about that, aren't you, Don? This rule about using technology of the 1960s applies to communications and entertainment too, yeah? And there's no music either. You've got to have cassette tape players and you've got to use a camera with film in it. No digital cameras were allowed. And the, re the reality was that th this brought it back to the human element once again. And this was a big kick on the whole idea of uh, not being involved with, you know, the winner's not going to be the guy with the most money. It's not going to cost you $10 million to get involved. It's, uh, you know, available to anyone that's got the passion to want to do it. You can buy your little boat. You can just get out there and have a go. And that was what appealed to a lot of people that followed the race as well as the sailors who participated but boy it was demanding and a, and a lot of them didn't make it you know we had plenty of drama that's for sure drama can, can you share with us any of those sorts of really intense dramatic moments from the the 2018 race I mean, we lost four boats which was pretty sad we you know we we got all the people uh, we had a few dismastings I never really say it much, but the event is now three years in the past, so I think I can, you know, talk about it. My opinion is that, you know, in some ways, the race was as it is, but I think we got a little bit of bad luck. The fleet ended up down in the Southern Ocean earlier than we expected. This was a first sort of uh, rerun of it, you know, with slightly more modern boats. So the winter, you know, it was still a back end of winter, you could say, and the storms were horrific. We had one particularly bad storm. We lost two boats in that storm and one guy, Avalish Tommy, an Indian guy, had, a, had effectively like a broken back, couldn't move on his boat. It was a massive effort to recover him with, uh, you know, Australian Rescue Coordination Centre doing an amazing job. We had another dismasting in the... Um, Pacific Southern Ocean, Pacific side of the Southern Ocean, uh, put a little hole in the bottom of his boat so he had to get taken off as well. That was Loic Lepage. Susie Goodall, our only uh, female engine in the race, a British engine, a brilliant sailor, had one of the best prepared boats in the fleet. She got pitch poled at stern over bow, going completely over, upside down, smashed the boat incredibly hard. She was, a fl she was afloat but um, couldn't go anywhere, no rig, couldn't do anything. We had to get her out as well. So uh, there, was, there was plenty of drama and excitement. And um, whilst it's part of the colour of an event like this, uh, we, it was certainly top end. You know, we, we had a, our fair share of it. A lot of the events that pulled out, pulled out in the first part of the race, sailing down to Cape Town, you know, another dismasting. But in that instance, RA was able to sail his self back to Cape Town and get out. So it's a very demanding race. There's nothing like it at all on the planet. And at this time in 22... We've uh, learned a lot from that and uh, we've made some slight changes to the timing and a few other issues and so we've uh, got our fingers crossed, touch wood, um, that it won't be quite as dramatic but it'll still be incredibly exciting and Mark will be part of that. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, so Mike, let's go back to your experience, which was equally dramatic in a different way. Tell us, tell us more about what happened to you during the 2018 race, because I'm sure that as you set out from Adelaide in December, you won't want to run out of water again, yeah? Yeah, well, water's pretty important. And um, it, it's, the, 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 the boat had, has, um, um, I've altered it a little bit, but, but anyway, now that there's 200 litres in the keel, 100 litres on, uh, on the port side, and then there are containers where I can carry you know, another 100 litres. And what, as you use the water, you, um, you manage it and you, uh, you're also collecting rain. And I collected quite a fair bit of rain um, in the tropics, crossing the equator, in the uh, going from the north to the South Atlantic. But really, once I was in the South Atlantic, I really collected very little water. And in the Southern Ocean, I only really collected a, a, a litre. Anyway, as your as your um, water gets low, you can you can manage it in a sense of, you know, there's a 20 litre container, there's a 20 litre container. You know exactly what you've got. You know what your consumption might be, three litres a day or whatever. And, and you're, you're monitoring that and you're also looking at where you are, opportunities of catching water and whatever. When I, so there is, there's no modern equipment in the boat, so you can only catch rain. But it came clear to me as I was approaching the bite that it wasn't really wise to keep going across the Pacific with so little water. Uh, because the bottom line is I really would run out. So as I was going along, we actually had an emergency desalinator, which is a hand pump. And I took it out of the container and I thought, look, I don't want to get in a position where I'm going to rely on this to keep alive. So we, while I've still got 20 litres of water and I can make it to Fremantle, say, I accept I'm going in support. I'm, I'm, I'm going to accept that. So you accepted that your race was over for now and then based on how much water you could desalinate per day you had to work out which port you'd be landing at. So I got it out and crank 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 and each crank gives you six drops of water. So 3,000 pumps gives you a litre. So to fill the boat up 330 litres in the boat is a million pumps. So I thought look I can pump this for two hours a day, two and a half hours a day, and get two litres, two and a half litres. And that is fine in an emergency, but you can't use that to set out to do it. That can't be your primary source of water. It's an emergency only. And the fact is, I decided when I used it that I was going into port. And you were able to get past Fremantle, Hobart, and New Zealand to Adelaide, which is also your home port. And it's just once I pulled into port, I decided to, uh, to, to, to leave the race at that time. It's a non-stop race. If you put into port once, you go into a Chichester class. And when I put into port, I thought, look, I'll go back to work now and uh, because I've stopped. And to my mind, if I stopped for three hours or three days or three years, I've stopped. So it just so happens that three years later, well, hang on. I should hang on. Hang on. I should I should make the next uh, uh, announcement here um, because there was no time limit on the race on finishing the race, and so Mark sort of retires into Adelaide, and that's it. It's all over. So we just he, he made the stop and he stopped, and that was all. 
Anyway, about a month or so ago, Mark calls me up and says, Don, I'm thinking of coming back. Uh, I'm going to sail back to La Sable. I might do it non-stop. And just as a joke, in the comment on Facebook, I think it was, I said, oh, Mark, you could probably rejoin the race. And Mark immediately sent me a private message said, could I? And I, I was joking. And I thought, oh, no. I said, I think he probably could. So I looked in the notice of race and we actually worked it out and he actually can because there's no time limit. So I then spoke to the mayor of La Sable d'Alone, Yannick Moreau, who's our only real partner. And I say, hey, hey, Yannick, uh, Mark wants to rejoin the race and he's going to sail back to La Sable d'Alone. And Yannick laughed and he said, you're kidding me, Captain Coconut. And I said, oh, jeepers. And he said, oh, we'll put on a finish for him if he makes it. So this could be the longest epic solo circumnavigation in a yacht race ever. So, Mark, you're really sailing around the world one and a half times, aren't you? Come on, then. What's your plan? At the moment, I have a PB of 13,500 miles in 157 days. So on, on the half course. So... I've got to get to, to La Sable de Lon. And the second half of the course is different to the first half of the course because Cape Horn is involved and that's quite a challenge to get around. So my, my, my first challenge is, is to get cleanly to the start in, in one, one leg, which will be a very interesting thing to do in its own right. And then what I, uh, for the next race, I've got to say, right, well, the best I've done so far is 157 days past Adelaide. So I've, got to, so I've got to get past Adelaide is my first objective in less than 157 days. In fact, I've got to get to Hobart before the 31st of January because of the later departure, there's a gate in Hobart that you need to clear in order to get to Cape Horn in time in the weather window. So the, the challenge is, is to get to Hobart in however many days it is by the 31st of Jan, beautiful. I'll have a new PB, either on days or on distance. What I would say, he's got to get a personal best because at 157 days to Adelaide halfway, if you double that, it's 314 days. And Sir Robert Knox Johnson in Sue Haley in, two, in 1968, before they'd walked on the moon, you know, he did it in three, 312 days. So it's a bit embarrassing for Mark if he turns up after Suhaley, you know, like that was, you know, that, that'll be a joke. So you've got to be faster than Suhaley. That's right, but, but the, the, you're comparing Sir Robin and me. You're comparing Sir Robin and me. And, however, isn't it fun to be in that world, to immerse yourself in that world, to, because, because you've got similar boats, similar equipment. He hadn't done it before. You didn't know whether it could be done. Now we know it can be done, but it's still hard. It's still hard. And, and, and um, so it, it really is a personal challenge. You know, it's sort of like climbing Everest with the same gear that Hillary had, as opposed to being escorted to the top because you've paid your fee. So it's, it's a hard thing to do and it's a fun thing to do. And to be honest, because all those frills are stripped away, because you don't have a big team on call supporting you, you've got to work out your position, you navigate yourself, you make your own decisions. And and because you're navigating by the stars, you see things differently. You appreciate things that you wouldn't otherwise see. Yet the wildlife that you see. I remember once in the Indian Ocean, 
at night once the the phosphorescence was absolutely spectacular in the water at night and i go why is it so lit up at night and i looked at the chart and i'd sailed over a seamount and you know it might have been 100 meters deep in 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 3000 meters deep but that object on the seabed created some upwelling and the plankton came up and the zooplankton ate the phytoplankton and the fish eat that and the birds attracted to that so all of a sudden there's a whole little ecosystem going on because of this little blip on the seabed that you wouldn't have noticed if you're just looking at a computer screen whereas i'm out there looking at i was measuring the passage of time by the intervals between full moon it's wonderful it's a wonderful it's it's wonderful to listen to your stories mark but we talked about the test of being a solitary sailor on the ocean. Don, tell us about the weekly radio calls you have with Mark. Mark was unique in many, many ways, right? One of the things that all the entrants had to do, we'd call them once a week for a uh, about a six, seven minute telephone check-in. We called them a safety call because we didn't really want to do a big interview because it breaks their isolation. But every time we called Mark, I could never get him off the phone. You know, it was just crazy. We, uh, you know, but in the end, after the first few months, uh, people really started to like it. And he actually got quite a huge following. It was really um, quite interesting because he was so different compared to the rest of the entrants. I mean, everyone had a story and everyone was very human and things like that. But Mark was just slightly uh, uh, left field. You know, he was just very much in his own time and space, um, not really uh, looking at a competitive race, but just wanted to get around. That was the, the big one of the big differences, you know. Let's take our listeners out to the Golden Globe race in 2018 and have a listen to just a few seconds of one of those calls to really understand what it was like. This was from the 9th of October 2018. Globe. G'day. Coconut <laughs> Command Module. Hello. <laughs> Yeah, good to speak to you. How's everything going back there? Well, I'm on station here in the Indian Ocean, and uh, nothing's much, nothing's much changed. Yeah, you can't do much if there's no wind, eh? We're uh, we're watching well, your tra- watching your tracker and watching the weather, and uh, yeah, there's a bit of a hole around you. Well, that's a bit of an issue because uh, I've, I, since I've come to the Indian Ocean, I've caught one litre of palatable water and um, that's really almost seems to be a quieter. Up there I was catching heaps of water, I caught it like 140 litres and top right up. But now I'm, I've got enough to get to, uh, to Hobart, uh, no worries, I'm watching it, uh, but I'm certainly not replenishing and um, it's probably partly due to being too far north and partly due to that the Southern Ocean is a little more difficult. And you get passing showers, but the problem is the showers generally come with uh, wind, and that's got spray and it's salty. I I can hear what you mean about Mark's schools, because uh, this one was was actually went on, I think, for about 16 minutes. But seriously, it sounds like 2018 was one hell of a race. uh, Out of interest, Don, who actually won, and and how long did it take them? It was an amazing adventure, and it was won by Jean-Luc uh, Vandenheide, a, a French sailing guru. This was his sixth solo circumnavigator navigation, and he's 73 at the time, and he won the race. You know, it was a huge story. I forget, I think it was 212 days, I think. 
and he was actually delayed because he suffered rig damage in the Southern Ocean about a week or so before Cape Horn, so slowed right down. So the comparison speed, if he hadn't have done that, he would have been under 200 days, which is completely outrageous. You know, it was so much faster than we ever imagined. So it was uh, quite interesting. So the difference now in 22, when all the boats, we've got 28 entrants at the moment, they all assemble here on the marina. The two weeks before the start, everyone will be looking at them differently because they'll know now that yes, it's a huge challenge. We only had five finishes last time. Yes, we've all learned from that, but yes, it's still in a real adventure with an unknown outcome. So when they set off, they'll be looking at them a little bit differently and say, wow, this is like a bunch of gladiators heading out to do something quite special. And no one knows what's gonna happen. So, um, and Mark will be fine, they'll be good parties. So it's cool. <laughs> Just thinking about the truly incredible experience that you've both talked about here, I can see so many lessons that could be really valuable to all of us in our work and in our, in our private lives. From the need for preparation to the importance of following your dreams and how that can create incredible role models that we are still trying to emulate decades later. Yeah, absolutely. It's important, you know, the world, you imagine, if uh, there was no such thing as adventure or pushing yourself to extremes, nothing would ever be developed. Nothing would ever. There'd be no new breakthroughs. There'd be no nothing. You know. You, you know. I mean, we're sort of in the GGR. They're all volunteers pushing themselves on this amazing adventure. But, but you know, in business and in life. Advent, the word adventure means any activity with an unknown outcome and that really holds true to business and you will learn to be a good businessman if you pick up on all the attributes that you get with any adventure you know that, that that's the reality and so that's why it's a blind freddy moment when you say you can't learn it from a book of course you can't you know so much about schools and so much about education is is okay a little bit of it's good, but there's a whole lot of it that's a load of crap. You know, you, you got to learn your life skills and your life skills you get from doing your own thing and finding out who you are by pushing yourself and getting outside your comfort zone. So, you know, you, th there's a certain real important aspect of, of making sure as an individual, you don't just pick the easy road. You got to push yourself and get out there, and and it's those that do that be, that make a difference, and and that difference uh, helps everything, you know. And and uh, the world's in a mess now environmentally, and and uh, it, it's really really going to be interesting to see uh, what happens over the next fifty years. I won't be here, but boy, and I'm part of the problem. I mean, everyone's part of the problem. So so yeah, adventure is a good thing. Thanks, Don. Mark, would you like to add something to that? Look, I agree, and and I, I think firstly what we're doing is also pretty neat in a sense that we're harnessing the wind we're harnessing the sun we're sailing around the world really with very little imprint on consumption we're using recycled boats that are, that are designed 50 years ago that are small but safe so it's it's not a bad thing of of, of making things simple and sustainable and 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 as, as Don said you know the highs and lows I mean so in coconut all the all the derad vents on the upper deck have all been taken off because in the southern ocean you actually cop a hiding and you're trying to keep water from out from down below so the southern ocean is 
bloody cold and wet. And sailing through the tropics is really hot. And when you take all the derived vents off, it's even hotter. But the issue is, is you're trading these things off. And the fact that, the, that it's hot crossing the equator gives you great joy when you're freezing in the Southern Ocean because you know you're going to warm up later on. We've really got to sum this up now. It was something that Don said earlier. Adventure makes good people and good people make good business. Let's just think about that. Fantastic. Thank you, Don. Thank you, Mark. As always, until next time, be safe, be remarkable, be the difference. And that's it from us at Engineering Matters. Thanks for listening. We'll see you all in the new year. Engineering Matters and Planet Beyond are productions of Rebe Media. This episode was hosted by John Baston Pitt of Fugro. Co-hosting by Alex Conacher and Bernadette Ballantyne. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. Series supervision by John Young. And our own resolute captain is Rory Harris. Thank you for listening. You can find Planet Beyond on all podcast apps and on Fugro's website, fugro.com. We've posted a link in the show notes. Thank you.